Hello and welcome to Wild and Theology. My name is Will and this is my good friend and colleague, Kaylee. Hi. (laughs) Yeah, so today we are discussing sex positivity. We're trying to come up with a good definition of sex positivity and what that means on the personal level, on your relationships, and more on a, a larger, bigger picture area. And we are doing that with the help, or mostly she's doing it, with uh, Dr. Katahakis. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Katahakis is a published, award-winning author, licensed psychotherapist, and is recognized as a leader in the field of integrative sex therapy. As the clinical director of Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, she has extensive experience in working with a full spectrum of sexuality. She makes regular contributions to publications like Psychology Today and the Huffington Post, has been interviewed by Rolling Stone, Washington Post, and of course, Wild and Theology, and has made several television appearances on programs like Inside Hollywood, Spike TV, and CNN, and is frequently featured as a prominent expert panelist at sexuality conferences worldwide, along the likes of Dan Siegel, Drew Pinsky, and Christopher Kennedy Lawford. So some of the books that she's authored that I've actually read are Sex Addiction is Affect Dysregulation, which is essentially the the neurobiological underpinnings of sex addiction. And this was one of like the foundational texts for me and like what made me decide to go into psychotherapy. And then uh, in the past year, I believe, I listened to the audiobook for Erotic Intelligence, Mm -hmm. which is basically about how to be, how to go through recovery and become erotically intelligent. And during the interview that we have with her, um, she makes the distinction between the sexual and the erotic, where the erotic is really that humanized version of sexuality, where it's not merely just genital to genital stimulation, is that it's the full experience that like she talks about like a a jazz performance. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really great conversation. She's very knowledgeable. And there's also some very practical lessons to be used in our relationships, especially new relationships and talking about sex. So if you want to follow her work, which I highly recommend, you can find her on Instagram, Alex Katahakis. We'll put, post that in the description, along with her website, which again is just alexkatahakis.com. If you guys want to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, we are at Wild and Theology. So yeah, now we're going to get into the actual interview, so we really hope you enjoy it. So welcome to Wild and Theology, Dr. Katahakis. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Will. Nice to be here. Mm-hmm. So to, to begin this podcast, we kind of wanted to talk about sex positivity and how it's can begin with the personal and then with the close relationships one might have and then how that relates to society at large. And so we wanted to set a foundation of what that actually means with the personal. And so kind of a thought that I had have had recently is that, you know, the people I'm attracted to are both sexual objects and their own divine subjects. And so it's true to say that a woman, uh, women are objects in my awareness and I'm going to imbue them with my sexuality. And yet it's equally true to say that they are their own person and that must be respected as much as I try to respect my own sexuality. 
And so is that something that you agree with or do you find disagreement with that? No, I think that's a beautiful explanation of the myriad of paradoxes in mm. life. Um, I was just talking about lust on a webinar and thinking about healthy lust versus toxic lust. Okay. Um, and, you know, this lust circuit in the brain that attracts us to so many sensual things in the world, um, but that can create great problems if we become gluttonous because of it. So I think this is what you're talking about. I really think is, I, I don't want to just reduce it to biology right. um, so that it becomes again, reductive, that these are biological directives that you presumably from what you said as a heterosexual male, see beauty in the female form, right? And there's going to be a particular kind of female form that you're attracted to for a whole host of reasons we probably could never figure out. Yeah. right? The, the context where you grew up, your religion, your family of origin, you name it, what you saw when you were five. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's a whole, you know, holograph <laughs> constellation that you're attracted to. And so that's going to be the thing that, you know, hits the brain quickest, right? Mm -hmm. It comes in, data streams in through the central nervous system. It's going to hit the back of the brain, the occipital cortex, visually, boom, data goes back front. I mean, it's happening in milliseconds down yeah. to the amygdala and an assessment is made in nanoseconds about whether that person is attractive, hot, beautiful, sexy, you name it. Mm -hmm. And then if you are interested, you'll actually meet the human being, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who is a human being, a spiritual being, and you may like that person. You might not even like them once you get to know them, right? Right. They right, might yeah. they might be just like gorgeous, but not very <laughs> bright, or they don't hold your same value systems, or yeah. any number of other things that would have the fantasy of that initial vision fall flat. So it's really both and, and there's a lot of complexity to your question, which I like. Yeah, and and that's kind of what we wanted to start with. It's trying to make a nuanced statement there. And I love how you said both and, because it's a beautiful way to kind of capture the complexity of things that you try to find that both and and everything to bring those things together, even if it's paradoxical or it seems paradoxical. Right. Our society has become extraordinarily sexual. Like it seems to be kind of everywhere that you look, you know, music, ads, video games, TV. And I, I think the concern that comes when sex is everywhere is that the overexposure is cheapening or desensitizing people to what can be a deeply profound and important part of our human existence. So clearly we need better maps to navigate that new extraordinarily sexual landscape that we're exposed to. And so from this foundation that we've set, how would you say we could start um, balancing our own sexuality with the divinity of others, or in other words, how we can embrace the beauty that comes with that increase in freedom of sexual expression and having sexuality be more integrated at a personal level, while at the same time respecting it as a deeply profound aspect of our experience? Okay, so there are a lot of questions in that. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, I'm just going to free associate and then we can come back to make sure okay. I answered your questions. There's something about this hypersexualized culture that we live in that is not sexy, mm -hmm. right? It, it's all like what's left to show since we've shown everything. Like genitals are on full display everywhere. Mm -hmm. And people just reveal every single part of their body. 
And that's an interesting thing too, because we end up male and female alike objectifying ourselves. We reduce ourselves to a body part. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just a female. I'm just something you want to hit. Um, or I've got power over you because you want to hit it, as it were. I mean, mm -hmm. just that language alone is um, somewhat violent. Mm -hmm. um, and so the pornographic strips out the sensual. It strips out beauty. It strips out spirituality. Mm -hmm. And it strips out the human experience or the divine, if you will. Um, and so everybody is just fashioning themselves out after these pornographic images. And I call them pornographic just because they're stripped of humanity, not because it's sexual. Sex is beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, but because it's so highly commodified and objectified. Um, and then what's really painful is that people start to believe that sex is love, that if you want to have sex with me, then you'll want me. But that's not true. People mostly get discarded in that configuration. They're actually not wanted. They're being used. Mm -hmm. So we are, we've, it's a consumer culture. So we're trained to um, create ourselves as something to be consumed, to be used, and then be discarded. And it's, there's something really painful in that. And so to answer part of your question, I think the way that it is imperative for people to start reclaiming their sexuality is to start getting deeply curious about who am I sexually? Not who are you or what I saw in Cosmo magazine or what my friend told me, but who am I sexually? And apropos of that, I have a workbook coming out next year called What Turns You On? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a workbook specifically for people in their 20s and early 30s to get really gnarly down to the bone about what turns you on, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's broken up into body, mind, and spirit, um, exactly to look at these things. And nothing is off limits in this book either, by the way. Mm -hmm. So I have this fantasy, like if, you know, we were on a date and I, we were talking about what kind of movies do you like and what kind of books do you like and where do you like to travel and what kind of sex do you like, mm -hmm. right? Just to get it out on the table. What kind of sex do you like? That's a question a lot of people would be hard-pressed to answer because they don't know, Yeah. right? Because we don't explore our own unique sexuality, which, by the way, changes from decade to decade, if not sooner, um, we don't update our sexuality. We just kind of do what we've always done and then it gets boring and we don't know why. So I think that's the first step is people getting super clear with themselves about what kind of touch do you like? Um, what kind of um, sexual uh, stage interests you? Are you more romantic? Are you more kinky? Do you like fantasy? Do you like to role play? Um, do you just like sex, missionary style sex? Um, what is true for you? And without the inquiry, we can't really know. Yeah. And that really requires a lot of letting go of the sexual shame that you might have toward yourself that like, if you're afraid of being able to ask yourself that question, you're never going to be able to embody that in your relationship in any way. Um, right. That's why I created this workbook, because I thought, okay, this is a start. If I can put on paper in my own private room um, what I like or what I would like to try at least, mm -hmm. and then I have to deal with the shame that's coming up, then it's like, oh, 
this is interesting. Why do I feel so ashamed of this? Right. Um, maybe I need to talk in therapy about the shame that's coming up for me or, oh, I know where this came from. You know, my mother always told me that, you know, I would go blind if I masturbated. So that feels shameful to me. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's about deconstructing all the myths that we've been told about sexual pleasure. Um, that's the first thing that has to go in order to be free sexually and to not have shame and um, I think a lot of people get into trouble sexually and engage in behaviors that makes them feel bad afterwards because it's from a shame-based place that they're doing it. So if I can, if I understand then, what you find is that a lot of people aren't getting ashamed because of the act itself. It's usually how they feel about that act. That's really the, where it's coming from. Correct. Because yeah. look, there are only so many ways you can have sex, face it. Our bodies are meant to go together in a certain way. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are only so many positions. Mm -hmm. So it's the meaning that we make. And yeah. this is another point of discernment, Will, is, is thinking about, you know, is that thing, that sex act really have me out of my integrity? Does it violate my values? Mm -hmm. Or is it that I feel ashamed that I like it? Right. Those are two very different things. And so sometimes people come to sex therapy because they don't want to feel ashamed about the sex act they enjoy, which is different than someone else that would say that sex act makes me feel um, humiliated or denigrated. And it's just not right for me and my value system. So it's, it, it's a very nuanced point that can be very difficult because you may believe that you value something, even though it's coming from a, a kind of a script you've, you've been given, that you not, it's not necessarily authentic to you. That's right. And so mm -hmm. I think what we're up against is the invitation is to deconstruct everything you were ever told about sex and ask yourself, do I believe this? Is this true for me? Or is this something that generationally was handed down to me? And I think this aligns for many people when it comes to their religious or spiritual beliefs. You know, religion is a blind, obedient proposition, you know, from ancient times, at least it was in the religion I was baptized into, which yeah. was the Greek Orthodoxy, right? It's just blind obedience. And it's in a foreign language on top of it all. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when I got older and I started to look at that, religion, first of all, read it in English and understand it, then I started to ask myself, is this true for me? Does this align with me? Do I actually believe that? Um, or was I just baptized into this religion and now I'm stuck with it? Yeah. So it's really about the baby in the bathwater. You want to mm -hmm. keep what works for you and what is true for you and get rid of that which is shaming yeah. Yeah. Like I was raised, um, Christian and it was, uh, it was, it, I found it very difficult to deconstruct that because I found that even when I had made the decision, I don't believe in God. I found my mind continually looking for evidence that God actually existed, even though I'd intellectually made that. And then I found the other way where I re started reacting hostily toward anything religious and kind of lost that spiritual connection that's taken a lot of work to find again, you know? And so it's, it's such a, it's such a difficult thing in a complex territory. And, and that's kind of what we talk about, like, uh, making more complex maps to navigate this territory. 
And so I, that kind of leads into the, the next question is, do you feel that, you know, we can move forward with a complex enough map that allows us to have casual sexual relationships in a way that is not even just not unhealthy, but is outright healthy? Or do you find that it really comes down to that discarding sexuality that you mentioned earlier? No, I think it can be incredibly healthy. Mm -hmm. um, I think it all has to do with how we, we, the starting point must be how clear am I about who I am sexually okay. and can I communicate to another? Because the communication, the transmission of that clarity is essential and then consent and mutuality are the second most important point there. Because I hear this all the time. Uh, clients say, you know, I, uh, I'm into rough sex. And so they meet somebody on, you know, Hinge or something who says they're into rough sex. And then they get into the sex. And boy, my definition of rough sex and yours yeah. is very different because we didn't talk about what does that mean? Mm -hmm. right? It's very vague. <laughs> it's very vague. And then somebody feels assaulted um, or upset. And the other person's like, what? I told you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have to um, come, I think, with a clear understanding of who you are and not with rigid boundaries, like I won't do this and I will do this, but permeable boundaries that say, I'm willing to experiment and try things to see if it's me or not me. And if it's not, I'm going to stop. Mm -hmm. right because consent is fluid it's not one and done it should be talked about during the sexual experience or what i would prefer to call the erotic experience because sexual implies we're just making genital contact okay. as opposed to all of the things that can be erotic before that ever happens or if it ever happens even mm. and so again it's it's expanding it and making it more nuanced and i feel like that's kind of a theme where it's just it's a very nuanced thing and it is emergent. It's not yeah. rigid. Like, this is how you have sex in this little box. And now I know how I do it. As opposed to, um, it's like a jazz improvisation. We're getting together and we're going to jam and we don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But we know we're not going to end up playing classical music or rock music or going to play jazz. It is going to have a fluid um, emergent quality to it where we're riffing off of each other's energy mm -hmm. and we're watching each other. See, it's very associative, not dissociative. There's eye contact. There are cues. We're talking to each other. You know, what does this feel like? Are you okay with that? What about this? Um, so it's not just assumptive um, and it's not rigid. Well, I remember in, um, I believe it was in Erotic Intelligence, your book, Erotic Intelligence, where you kind of part of addiction recovery, sex addiction recovery is, if I remember correctly, finding those boundaries of what is too erotic or what is too sexual based on where you currently are in your recovery. Mm -hmm. And it, it really comes back to that. The, the book you're currently working on is like, you need to take the time to define what those actually are. Because if you it, until you've made it conscious and deconstructed it, you're just unconsciously playing these scripts. And that's how miscommunication can happen and, and an assaulting experience can happen because you just haven't sit down to think. Right. And also for people that are in early recovery from sex addiction, you know, their brains are already, they've got neural pathways formed by way of 
you know, experiences they've had or pornography or what have you that are firing together because they're so tenaciously wired together. So they can't help, but it's like having a car that's misaligned and you're trying to drive and it pulls to the left all the time. You're not ready to drive that car because it keeps pulling to the left. Um, So that's why I think people have to start out slowly and start to add things in and to see how am I doing? Can I handle this? Am I going to go off the rails? Do I need to pull back a little bit? Um, What's good for me is the question in this. And um, right. So there's a lot of talk about vulnerability, um, authenticity. These are words Mm -hmm. that have really been in the popular culture the last five years or so, but they don't get applied to sex. (laughs) Right. Right. It's not the date conversation. Like what kind of sex do you like? Um, as opposed to you get into a sexual experience with that same person and it gets kind of weird and it's like, oh my God, I had no idea that person was going to be into that and I'm not. And it's just strange because you didn't ask. Yeah. Well, I've had the experience where I'll be on a date and I'll try to bring up sexuality in a way that's respectful, in a way that's not like diving too deeply too soon. Uh, and yet I can, I can sense from the person that they get immediately uncomfortable with any mention of sex. Then why are they going out with you? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's very true. So it's, it's when you come across that, like, do you think that that's kind of a red flag or do you think that there's a way to address it in a way that kind of starts to break up that shame and, and make it a more comfortable topic? Yeah, I think if you're compassionate with that person yeah. and you say, you know, I just brought this up and it looks like you got uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to talk about this right now, that's okay. Um, But, you know, maybe it feels like it's too early for you or something like that. But just know that I'm somebody that has to talk about sex before I'm sexual with somebody. Because I really think, you know, communication and consent are important. And why get into the sexual realm if you're not going to be compatible with somebody? Why bother? Like bad sex is like... Yeah, you know, it's. I, I ask people all the time, like they have casual sex, and I'm like, well, how was it? And they're like, meh, it was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's like you sometimes even wish you just hadn't bothered or done it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's so personal. I mean, you're exchanging your body with another person, right? Um, right. And it's the difference between, I don't even know what a metaphor is for it now. I mean, the depths that we can go you know, erotically with our bodies, with our open heartedness, with that kind of unfettered experience of no shame, not being afraid are deeply profound. And yet when it's casual sex with someone and it's not great, it's like, you know, you put your toe in a beautiful lake that you really wanted to dive all the way into. Yeah. And there there was nothing really there. So, you know, there's usually no harm in it, but it's not like it was, it's like eating a bad piece of chocolate cake. Like, <laughs> ah, I wish I hadn't eaten that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This exactly. is stale. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's um, I guess like one of the things we've talked about on other episodes is the kind of dichotomy between freedom and responsibility where like more freedom is more responsibility. And so, if it, even if it's casual, there's still a lot of responsibility there to make sure that you are connecting emotionally and to be okay that even if it's a one-time experience, there is still something that needs to be done. There's aftercare involved in that. That's right. And aftercare yeah. is a part of my workbook also. Yeah. Um, so if we really look at the 
kind of rules and regulation from the bondage and domination sadomasochism community, BDSM. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot to learn from those communities because they make everything extremely explicit um, for safety purposes. And there's aftercare also. Mm-hmm. All of it's discussed on the front end. And it's not usually about genital contact. It's about an experience of eroticism, of arousal, of being able to tolerate pleasure, of experiencing oneself in all these different possible configurations mm-hmm. where trust and safety are the container for the erotic experience. Um, because without trust and safety, you're going to have a very hard time um, even orgasming because there's certain parts of the brain that have to go offline for that to even happen. You can't be worried about whether your front door's locked or somebody's going to come in the room and be sexually aroused at the same time. Yeah. Those don't go together. So yeah, this, this matter of what happens afterwards and how we tend to each other, even in a sexually a casual encounter. So oftentimes mm. people will have casual sex and then somebody doesn't hear from somebody again. And you know, if you've got a really thick skin, you're like, whatever, or that's just what guys do, or I don't know what happened there, as opposed to having some clear... Um, path of closure afterwards. Right. Like we're going into this and this is casual and we don't have expectations of each other, but w- how would you like to, you know, I don't know, put a period on this at the end of it? Do you want a text from me tomorrow? Um, should I check in with you later in the week? You know, what would feel good to you? Like that's before the sex even happens. And all of this is about us taking care of ourselves and tending to each other. Right. It's just about being kind. And I think kindness is essential for great sex, you know, empathy, compassion, the things that you're talking about. And um, that's when I think casual sex can be, you know, a really wonderful experience for both parties. Mm. Other than feeling ghosted and, and you're like, what did I do wrong or what's wrong with me? I mean, the self always turns back on to the self and starts attacking itself. Right. Uh, because of shame. It actually brings up shame. And it can be as simple as just a text afterward, just to touch in and make the person feel respected. Exactly. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. That was really fun. It was fun to meet you. You know, I hope your your dog's okay. Like, <laughs> not in that person's life. They told you their dog was at the vet or something. I, I yeah. don't know. But just mm-hmm. some personal thing that you experienced because you just had this deeply personal experience. And that in, inherent in that, we start to change the way we view the opposite sex because there are all these just kind of gross, reductive narratives like, you know, guys are this or women are that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, the guys are insensitive and um, women are clingy. I mean, you can split it up any way you want. Um, and those small gestures start to deconstruct those myths also. Yeah. And make us less at war with each other and more friendly. Do you think um, Do you think society can become too sexual? Or do you think that the real issue lies in our relationship to the increase in sexuality? Well, I think, I don't know what too sexual means. It's pretty mm-hmm. sexual now. I don't think it's erotic, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is the distinction I would make. It's incredibly unsexy in some ways mm-hmm. um, because again, it's so like overt and blaring and 
has so much to do with usury and objectification. And, and with that, a cousin to that is violence. So yes, I think it can get really gross and out of hand, but that has nothing to do with the realm of the, the erotic, the beauty of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I guess it's the, the lack of human element. Like you said, it's the objectification without humanizing it and the fact that it's commodified and just put out there as an object it's it's just non it's just inhuman i guess it is and it's very western this is what westerners do we mm. we pull pieces out and then we commercialize them so if you think about you know when eastern philosophies first started making their way west it happened you know with the beatles and maharshi and um, all these, you know, beautiful teachings coming from Hinduism and then Buddhism followed suit. And then there was a time like in the 80s was everybody was running around and they were spiritual and they had like pictures of Buddha on their T-shirts. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just completely out of context, <laughs> right? Or an Ohm sign. Um, and it's like, do you even know what that means? And do you know that it's related to a, a gestalt, a bigger whole here? Mm-hmm. And as Americans, that's what we do. We will just pull out one discrete piece, like a sexual act, and then we commercialize it, as opposed to saying, well, the act in and of itself is not dirty, wrong, perverted, but in the way that you are showing it, it it's um, kind of denuded of its humanity. Yeah. And then it just makes the deconstruction process that much more difficult because you're, it's so easy to conflate the act with the shame and, and other negative elements that have become associated with it. And so that kind of brings us to our next question where it's like, do you believe that OnlyFans, for example, is sex negative in the sense that it's commodifying these relationships? Or do you think that there's some way something like that could be a, a positive in terms of eroticism rather than just commodified sexuality? Yeah, I, that's a really tricky question because yeah. the sex positivity, as I understand it, you know, came out of feminism um, and a desire for everyone to be able to have and be whoever they were whenever they wanted to be, yeah. right? So it kind of opened up the world of sexuality. Um, you know, in the gay community, it was, I'm queer and I'm here. Um, And there was something really powerful about that social change that happened. And now something happened, um, has been happening over time, where it feels like it's upside down now. Mm -hmm. Like, it's hard for me to say that fans only is sex positive. Um, And again, like, then we are dealing with each individual human being that participates in that. I don't know them or who they are. (laughs) So how can I really say, but Mm. it feels again to me, and this is my bias. It feels like there's a soullessness to it, but that's what's missing for me. And, and I'm more attracted, you know, to the tantric practices, to the, um, you know, even into some of the kinkier practices, which have a reverence to them. I'm not interested in this just kind of public display of sex um, where it feels to me like people are using and being used. And for me, this is like an, an, it's an energetic experience or a consciousness. And, and even as I say that, I worry that it sounds elitist or something along those lines, but I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's very difficult too, because, you know, we've talked about this before where, it's so difficult to 
talk about the sex positive without, how do I put that? Is that it, there, there's so many ways, ways that it can be perceived as being sex negative when in reality you're just trying to have a nuanced understanding of it because making these blanket statements about it is just not working. And you can have somebody who's on OnlyFans and they're, they're using it in a way that's um, empowering, let's say, and yet the majority of it is very negative. And so maybe it's better to just get rid of OnlyFans despite those few empowering elements of it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about get rid of it. I don't think yeah, we're ever going to yeah. get rid of this. Like getting rid of porn, that's never right. going to happen. It really does have to do with, in my thinking, intentionality, consciousness, um, and what each person wants for themselves. Hmm. But also there is a responsibility, like you say, about what kind of messages are we giving young people yeah. about their bodies, about their sexuality. And I think so much of what you're talking about has come out of the abject shame that we've had, the lack of sex education we have, which is just mind boggling to me, um, that we don't teach sex education in school, that we don't teach pleasure. Yeah. We teach dysfunction, we teach disease, we teach don't get pregnant, but there's nothing about how your body works and the pleasure of the body. Um, and it's so bizarre because at 14 years old during puberty, these bodies are coming online, they're awash with hormones, they're growing pubic hair, their bodies are readying themselves for sexual activity, and yet we just ignore it. Mm -hmm. It would be like not sending your kids to any kind of school, even though they're learning to walk and talk and they want to be with other kids, right? Mm -hmm. So from the waist down, we just don't talk about pleasure at all and we don't normalize it and so it goes underground in all these distorted and you know perverted as in dangerous not very functional ways yeah i mean i i started watching porn at age 12 right and so i was being educated about sexuality and intimacy or intimacy since the age of 12 and i i didn't lose my virginity until 17 so that's five years of just inhuman education that's taken me many years to heal myself from and I'm still healing myself from, right? And so many people who aren't interested in psychology, aren't kind of, you know, had the good family that I came from, mm -hmm. it's very difficult for somebody can, to heal themselves from that. Yeah, the average age of pornography viewing today is eight. Eight. When yeah. you think about those digital images at eight years old, it's like watching, looking at somebody being dismembered. That, that eight-year-old cannot possibly grok what that is. It's so disturbing um, to their systems. And yet their brains, especially boys, start getting wired up. And by the time they're 20, they're a mess. Yeah. Right? And they don't really know what, you know, the act of making love, of real eroticism is. It's all about choking, spitting, throwing people out of moving vehicles, um, you know, ejaculating on their face, you name it. That, that's what they think sex is. And then the girls do it because they think that's what boys want, even though they don't really want it, it turns out. So it's all very convoluted and disturbing. And I appreciate this conversation because, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't understand these nuances. So they want to make it good or bad, sex positive or sex negative. Um, you know, it, it just gets really reductive quickly. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, I was going to say funny, but I'm not too sure if I'd call it funny, but 
where a lot of this kind of sex positivity, at least as far as I understand, comes kind of from the postmodern movement, which is about deconstructing categories. And then now we're trying to make such absolutistic categories. Yeah, the problem is that they deconstruct categories and then it's anything goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard this beautiful term, a perspectival madness. And that's what, in a lot of cases, it becomes. That's great. That's what mm -hmm. it is. Or Ken Wilber talks about flatland, yeah. that everything just gets flattened out. And that's exactly who I learned that term from. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you believe that those who have, had, have been addicted to sex, love, or por pornography are able to return to normalcy or even transcend normalcy? Or do you believe that there is never like a real full recovery? I don't know what normalcy means. Mm. Uh, normal is another word I think we have to be very careful of because I don't know what's normal for anybody but myself. And even, you know, on a good day, I'm not sure either. <laughs> um, so I do and have seen people restore their sexuality to something that's good and true and beautiful for them. Yeah. Um, and it takes a lot of work, like you're talking about, Will. These are unbelievably intense patterns. I mean, human beings are nothing but a series of habits. Um, our brains are super automatic. Um, and we're mostly formed and forged in the first, you know, 18 years of life. Um, our brains are super malleable. And anything that happens to us gets encoded all the way through the system. There's no separation between the brain and the body and the mind. And so these messages um, can be really intense um, because we think them constantly. They're wired into the body. We feel shame. And trying to break those patterns is tough. Mm -hmm. And so with sex addicts, sometimes not only are they having to kind of heal their brains from all of the problematic sex they had and problematic by their definition, not again by some morality, but they feel like they were hurting themselves um, and treating themselves sometimes like garbage cans, essentially. Yeah. Um, so the, the sex addiction itself is traumatizing. Then there's the underlying trauma that drove the person to do that to begin with. And then there's the feeling of unbelievable shame and guilt for how badly they have, you know, affected their partners and their children like the way they've destroyed their marriages and what they did to their partners the lying the cheating the stealing of money the verbal abuse you name it um so it's a really gnarly path forward but it's doable i mean i see people do it every day mm -hmm. um, that people want to be aligned with their value system and they want to find out who they are independently of what was done to them and then what they later did to themselves. So there is a path forward. It's just hard. Uh, do you believe that psychedelics play into this or how do you feel about psychedelics? Well, I'm not an expert on, um, you know, psychedelic assistant therapy. I've read a lot about it. Mm. Um, I think it's incredibly promising and it's probably the future of psychiatry uh, because it is so powerful um, and so efficient in the way that it works. Um, and so I think if people are in the right hands that, you know, they do their research, they find practitioners that know what they're doing, um, that a lot of healing can take place through uh, psychedelic medicine. So if you could give one or two habits to people recovering from 
uh, sex addiction or addiction or just really trying to integrate their sexuality, what would you recommend? What would those one or two habits be? Well, I think the first one has to do with this matter of neural integration that we could also call self-love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, that's been made fun of a lot, especially by Stuart Smalley um, back in the day, um, you know, saying affirmations and things of that nature. But to try to leapfrog a process out of addiction or use spiritual bypass or something like that mm-hmm. doesn't go well. That without the grueling work of um, psychotherapy and recovery circles, um, the, the, it, it won't happen. And those are all about establishing new habits every single day. Yeah. Um, and so for people in recovery, there are these, you know, this book was called, I think, Automatic Habits or Automatic Atomic Habits, something like that, about doing one small thing for five minutes a day. The act of getting up every day and journaling um, stating affirmations, meditation, prayer, if that has meaning to you, going to meetings, those habits start to change um, the person's brain and nervous system. And those habits start to create a different focus because so much focus is on the addiction and getting into the experience and then cleaning up the experience and then hiding the experience. Mm -hmm. So when a person's energies go to something else, to being more emotionally sober, change happens quite quickly. So the habit of self-care is what I'm talking about. Exercise, eating well, sleeping well, reading books that are um, that give you a sense of sustenance and nurturing, okay. um, workshops, being in circles where these kind of conversations are being had is profoundly helpful to people. So it's got to be a lifestyle change. I think in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say the only thing that has to change is everything. You know, people think, oh, I'm just going to stop drinking. It's like, well, it's just not just that, actually. Um, A whole bunch of other things you're going to have to take a look at. But my my feeling about that is that, look, you're going to be a year older anyway or five years older anyway, if you're lucky. Why not be becoming the person you want to be? right? It's never too late to change. And just sitting in a place of feeling like a victim um, doesn't get anybody anywhere. So I think we have to be willing to tolerate feeling lost, feeling uncomfortable, wanting to cry all the time, feeling like you're losing your mind in some ways. Um, And that, you know, you just want to sleep all the time because you're integrating all these feelings and memories that are coming up. And trusting the process, especially if you have good guides, you yeah. have to have good guides, a good therapist, sponsor, um, hallucinogenic therapist, psychiatrist, you name it. Um, you need a team of people that are going to hold your hand and a community of concern to get mm-hmm. through it. So the second piece of advice would be don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in my own recovery, that was the biggest thing is learning to that I have friends I can reach out to and actually doing that, you know. So would is there any place that people can find you on social media or the Internet that you'd like to share? Or? Sure. Um, on Instagram, you can find me on Instagram. It's Alex Katahakis and Twitter is at Alex Katahakis. Likewise with Facebook. Um, centerforhealthysex.com is our website where you can find a whole host of resources and 
um, our intake line there where you can call and talk to an intake counselor really confidentially about anything. And if we can't help you, we can certainly point you in the direction of people who can um, in your area and recommend books and all sorts of things for you, whatever your sexual issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Amazon, you can find my books. You can find Erotic Intelligence, Mirror of Intimacy. And um, hopefully in January, you'll find what turns you on. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I'm looking forward to that one. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you both. It was lovely to meet you.